God's presence, God's people, God's purpose, God's plan. These have always been the essential ingredients of the church. We find a recording of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. That letter was the first of a two-part work, the second being the Book of Acts. In this letter, Luke recalls Jesus' ascension and commission, the spread of the Gospels, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the early church. In the past, God's presence was with His people in one place at one time. But early on in Acts, Pentecost occurs and God's promised Holy Spirit is unleashed in power, filling those who would receive and overflowing to those around them. With this new Holy Spirit power, the church began to explode, stirring among thousands as the message grew and spread. The mission of the church has been made clear by Jesus Himself. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, more than 2,000 years later, God's presence is still being unleashed among God's people, and we are part of God's continued purpose and God's continued plan as the Holy Spirit moves in and through us. Well, good morning, nine o'clock service. Hey, what a great way to start off the day, huh? Oh man, you know, with the baptisms, that's fantastic. Glad that you're with us. Glad that you're with us online, joining us, and uh, in Belize and in our uh, Skagit campus uh, from all over. Uh, good to have you here today. This week, some of our uh, staff, a couple guys in our staff, were going through cleaning out a closet, and they came across a box of cassette tapes. Now, if you don't know what those are, ask your grandparents. And they were cassette tapes that went back to 1996. They were old sermon tapes of me. And at our staff meeting, they decided to have some fun with some old sermon tapes, which uh, brought about a question from someone. They said, do you remember your very first sermon? Which I'm sure it was very forgettable. That's why I don't remember it. But what I do remember is that in 1984-85, as I was finishing up uh, my degree, I took a homiletics class, a preaching class. And in that class... Uh, our professor is a fantastic professor. There were books that we read on preaching. We had discussions about preaching. We listened to different preachers and different styles of preaching. And in that class, part of our, our requirements were that we had to, to prepare and deliver over the course of the, of the, of the uh, quarter three 15 to 20 minute sermons to the class. And then we would evaluate one another. Now, some of you are wishing that I still delivered 15 to 20 minute sermons. I'll just say I've Quit clapping. <laughs> I've graduated from that. So anyway, um, so the final one, the final little sermon that we, sermon et, that we delivered was uh, videotaped. And now again, if you don't know what a videotape is, ask again. But, and then we were required to take that and watch it and evaluate ourselves. What did we like? What did we do different? What, where's some of the little ums or whatever that we was? So I took this and I went to my parents' house. They lived about 35 minutes away. And I said, Mom, I need to watch this. I don't want you to watch it with me. So I put it in the, in the VCR in our family room, and the kitchen was right off of the family room. So she was in doing mom stuff or whatever. She was cooking dinner. I don't know. So I'm watching this. She's listening to my sermon and, and occasionally just peeking around. And I'm taking notes, not because it was so profound, but just a lot to correct. And at the end, I got done, and I, I popped it out, and she came out, and she says, wow kind of humbling, isn't it? And I'm like, mom, 
you're supposed to be my encourager. And, you, and, and I just, I mean, I laid it on her. Like, you know, I'm trying to learn this and you do it. And, and the guilt from that, I mean, she's still, like, last night she watched the sermon, immediately texted me, hey, that was a great sermon. She does it all the time now. I think it's from the guilt from that one deal. Sometimes she'll say, that's the best sermon I ever remember hearing. Her age, she doesn't remember last week. But anyway, <laughs> so there's all these sermons. But today's sermon my sermon is about a sermon. It's about a first sermon. And while my sermon might be forgettable even today, this first sermon that we're going to look at was absolutely unforgettable. It was Peter's very first sermon. And some would say it was his best sermon. It's found in Acts chapter 2. We've been studying the book of Acts this summer. and We'll continue on through September. In Acts chapter 2, he delivers his first sermon. And what's interesting is that as you read it, it really is only 26 verses long. And if you're even an average reader, you can read his entire sermon in less than three minutes, which I know you're saying, why don't you preach a little more like Peter? Not going to happen. I will say this. It wasn't just a three-minute sermon. What Luke records for us is kind of a summation. It's, 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 it's a, a condensed highlights version of this sermon because at the end of the sermon, it says this in Acts chapter 2, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them. So it wasn't just this. So just know that he preached longer than just the 26 verses. Many words. Can I repeat? Many words. And while we're on the subject Later, Paul would preach, and look what it says about Paul's preaching. He spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept talking on until midnight. And look what Luke says. Paul talked on and on. So quit your sniveling. Quit your clapping. Just sit back. We're not going to be here till midnight. Okay, now that I've got that off my chest, we're in Acts chapter 2. We're studying, as I said, through the book of Acts with this series, Unleashed, Unhindered, Unstoppable, what God was doing in the world and what he continues to do. Catch us up to speed. Jesus was crucified. He was buried. He was resurrected. And for 40 days, he met with people, his followers, up to 500 of them in Jerusalem, in Galilee. And, uh, and he walked with them. He ate with them. They touched him. He talked with them. He spoke about the kingdom of God. And then he comes back to Jerusalem, and there's about 120 of his followers in Jerusalem. And he meets with them, and one day, while they're having a meal, he says to them, gives them this instruction, wait here, wait here in Jerusalem until you receive the gift that has been promised from the Father, this gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they wait, and one day, two days, three days, ten days go by. And you may be wondering what all happened during those ten days. We don't know all of it. But at, Luke, at the end of Luke's gospel, he does give us a glimpse of what happens in those 10 days after Jesus you know, floated back to heaven, and then they're sitting there waiting for this gift. In Luke, at the end of his gospel, he says, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So they would continue, sounds like going daily up to the temple courts, and there they would meet together, and they would do their prayers, and they would do this, all the things that they would do in Judaism, and they're praising God. Later, Luke records, all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a background. Otherwise, if you're really astute, some of these pieces don't seem to fit together. They're in a room upstairs or wherever it might be, and then there's thousands of people. The temple court, where the temple is in, in Jerusalem, uh, it's where if you've ever seen a picture of the Dome of the Rock, when Herod bit, built the temple, Herod was really more about his own glory than been trying to build a worship place uh, for the Jews. It, this was really more about Herod. 
But he took this top of a mountain and chopped part of it off and moved it over, and he made a 36, 37-acre pad, building pad, kind of this trapezoid pad, where he built the temple up there on, this, on the Temple Mount. And the whole thing wasn't a building. There was a lot of open court space. But on the eastern wall of the Temple Mount, right on the uh, top of the Kidron Valley, right by, you could just look over at the Mount of Olives, on that wall, it's a 1,500-foot wall. Now, imagine five football fields end to end. And in this, there were 162 columns. These columns were 27 feet tall, and it is said that, that it took three men going uh, hand-to-hand around it. Large, large columns for, for 1,500 feet in, in this covered area. This is Solomon's colonnade, his, his, uh, the portico, the porch. And this is where a rabbi with his disciples might go and teach them, or, or groups might gather as they're going to the temple. And so they're up there, and, the, and they're in this area at the temple. And I remember, if you were here last week, this is the day of Pentecost. This is the biggest festival in all of Jewish annual festivals. So there are more people in Jerusalem, packed, more people at Pentecost than there was at Passover. And they would come there, and they would be in the temple. So you, there are literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people on this 36-acre. It's, it's like a big festival you know, but there's not a a rock concert or bands or anything. They're there at the temple. And then on this day of Pentecost, there's this roar, this violent sound. It sounds like a wind, but it's not, but it, but it kind of sounds that way. And then there's this, this fire that like, it looks like fire, but it's not fire, but it comes down and it divides up and it goes on these followers of Jesus. And then, and then they begin to, to speak in languages that they've never learned. These weren't like um, unknown languages. These were languages of people that had come from, to Jerusalem from all around. There was known languages, but these are Galileans, and they began to speak that way. That's where we left off last week. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, our, our own languages, our own dialects. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Someone explain this. This is unique. This has never happened. We come to Jerusalem every year for Pentecost. We've been doing this for decades. We've never ever experienced this before. We've never, we don't even know what this is. Someone explain this. Help us know what's going on here. We, we see it. it it's, it's amazing, but we don't get it. Not everybody was so curious. There were some that were actually quite critical and we see that this is kind of the way it goes in these early days. There would be some who would embrace this message and some who would not only deny it, but would fight against it. Some of them that were a little bit critical, they, they said this. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Now, let me just say, this is at the 9 o'clock service. You're at the 9 o'clock service. Good things happen at the 9 o'clock service, but hopefully this does not describe you at the 9 o'clock service. They're making fun of them. They said they've had too much wine. And now, some of your Bibles might say they've had uh, new wine or sweet wine. Or there might be a little asterisk that kind of def- defines it more than just wine. It wasn't, wasn't new like it was like fresh out of the press type, you know, the, the grape squishing stuff. Because this was late May, early June. The grape harvest wasn't yet. This idea of sweet wine, there is, uh, it, as I read in the commentaries, that as they would make wine, as they pressed out the good wine, they would then later, they would add honey to the mixture. 
and it would make this sweet wine. It wasn't a high-quality wine, but the honey in with the grapes caused for a higher level of alcohol percentage content. I don't know if you've ever heard of a thing called MD-2020. That's not, a, a, that's not a, an eye doctor. Some of you are going, oh, that's like an optometrist. No. It would be the same kind of thing. They're saying, I know what's up. These guys had a whole bunch of mad dog this morning. And, and, and they're kind of make, not kind of, they're making fun of them. All right, it goes on. It says this. Then Peter stood up with the 11. And you know the 11 are going, oh, no, 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 Pete, no, no, whoa. Because Peter's always the first to talk. And usually it's a train wreck. Usually he's sticking his foot in his mouth. He's saying something, you know, even Jesus, when Peter talks to him one time, Jesus says, hey, uh, Satan, get behind me. Okay, so they're like, no, 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 Pete, Pete, Pete. Well, he, see, he stands up and he raises his voice and he dresses the crowd. Here's a little thing that I wonder about. You know, it says that they all heard it in their own language. And I've always just assumed, well, this one spoke, you know, in, in Arabic and this one spoke in Italian and this one spoke in, you know, whatever, Asian or whatever. Uh, but now Peter speaks. And is it that the Holy Spirit takes his words and translates it into everybody? I, I don't know. It, it's, not, it's not really pertinent to the sermon, but it just makes me wonder, as Peter's speaking with the power of the Holy Spirit, while he speaks once, do they all hear it in their own dialects? So he gets up to talk, and he says this. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, two different groups of people. They're all Jewish, but remember, there are people that have come here. If you were here last week, we saw the map. People who've come from Rome, you know, from Europe. There are people who've come from Africa. There are people who've come from Arabia. There are people who've come from Asia Minor. They've come from all over. So there's these fellow Jews, and there are people who live right there in Jerusalem, who live there all the time. He says, he says uh, for fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain. You want to know what does this mean? Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Like, I know. They're Galileans. We covered that last week. I'm going to give me some of them taters. I understand they're Galileans. But come on. It's 9 a.m., and there's a whole lot of things culturally with Jewish with, with why they would not drink that early. He says, come on, it's 9 a.m. Verse 16. Then one in the crowd, a man named Winostarchus, shouted, yes, but it's 5 o'clock somewhere. When the crowd heard this, they all joined together singing, red solo cup. From the just kidding version. <laughs> Some of you are like, i got to get me a Bible. I didn't. <laughs> One margarita, two margarita, three margarita. Shot. Let's do this thing. 99 bottles of sweet wine on the wall. No, no, no. What Peter does, is he says it's nine in the morning, and then he begins with an explanation and the promised gift. Jesus had talked about this gift. He talked about it in the upper room. He had told them about it at, at just 10 days ago, that there was this, this promised gift that would be coming to him. That, that's the uh, next blank. It's, it's the explanation and a promised gift. I uh, wanted to kind of get, get away from the other one. Let's move on. That, that there would be this gift, and it wasn't a what. It was a who. And Jesus had talked about this gift. Now remember, he's speaking to Jewish people, people who understood the Hebrew Scriptures. And as he's talking about this gift, when you think about the Holy Spirit in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there were times when the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody. But usually it was for a set amount of time for a very specific purpose in one individual. There was other times 
when it might be a couple. In fact, there was one instance that was about as closely related to what happens here in Acts 2 as any other. It's when Moses and the elders went up onto Mount Sinai and the Lord came upon, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they all began to prophesy. And what's interesting is two of the elders didn't go up on the mountain. I don't know what was wrong with those elders. They just decided to skip on that one. But two of these elders didn't go, Eldad and Medad. Maybe it's because they're names. But Eldad and Medad didn't go, but the Holy Spirit still came on them, and they're prophesying. And Joshua said, Moses, make them stop. They didn't go to the orientation meeting. It's a little bit of my paraphrase on that. And look at this, this humble spirit of Moses. Look at his wish. Moses said this, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Here's Moses, hundreds and hundreds of years before. He's saying, my wish is that God would pour out his spirit on everybody. And then like 600 years later, the prophet Joel comes along. And this is what's fascinating. Peter's getting up to preach his first sermon. And what he does really well is that he goes straight to the word of God. He begins to quote the prophet Joel. So Peter says this. No, no, this is what's spoken. Like, no, they're not drunk. This is what's spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This will be a gift for all people. This won't be a privilege for some. It won't be a reward for a few. It will be a gift for all. I don't think... Peter fully understands what all, how inclusive all, man, I'm not sure that Joel understood. They were probably thinking all the people in the nation of Israel, all in the household of Jacob, all, all those who are a part of, of God's chosen people. But Joel says, you know, there will come a day, we'll go on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. That happens every week during my sermon. Wake him up. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. What you see here is that the prophecy was that, is that the Holy Spirit would come out, and would be a gift for everybody. And it wouldn't just be for the, the Israel. It wouldn't just be for Jewish people. And it wouldn't just be for Jewish men. It would be men and women, sons and daughters, that the Holy Spirit is not gender selective on his gifting, on his calling, on, on, on his empowering that he's poured out on all people, on everyone. It would be a gift for all of them. It would be a new day. And then uh, grant me just a little grace because there's one little piece of Joel that I want to just spend a second on of, a, of what if. He says in verse uh, 20, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. We usually hear those kind of things when we think about that day before the final destruction and Jesus comes back. Interesting that just 50 days earlier, on Good Friday, the sun had turned to darkness from 12 noon until 3 in the afternoon. And Passover is always on the full moon after the equinox. And NASA astronomers can look back through celestial history and tell you that on April 3rd, AD 33, there was a full lunar eclipse. And it could have been that afternoon that when the moon rose full, it rose after an eclipse as a blood moon, possibly. Possibly 
as he's speaking of the prophecy of Joel from hundreds of years earlier, they're saying, we experienced that 50 days ago. Possibly, but very cool. Then he makes this statement, this profound statement. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Like, everyone, everyone. They didn't realize how everyone this was. They're, again, still thinking in the mindset of the Jewish people. But Philip would find out when the Holy Spirit would prompt him to go to the Ethiopian. An Ethiopian, a foreigner, and a eunuch at that. And he would receive this gift. Peter would understand this. When the Holy Spirit tells him about Cornelius and gives him this vision of the sheep, we'll look at this in five weeks, to Cornelius, this Roman, that he would be saved. Paul would figure this out when, when God would call him, his entire ministry would be to the Gentiles, those outside of the house of Israel, that everyone will be saved. So, so Peter, he just... He just Quotes Joel. You'd never expect Peter to even know Joel. You know, here's this fisherman, whatever, that's always sticking his foot in his He just quotes scripture, and then he starts to actually kind of, now that scripture's done, he, he begins to preach. Verse uh, 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. And this is how he starts. J- Jesus of Nazareth. And I just want to say, whenever you're preaching, you can never go wrong if you point to Jesus. And for Peter, and for me, and for us, always Jesus is the subject. Peter began to understand how Jesus was the fulfillment. You know, when Jesus was talking to those guys on, on the road to, to uh, uh, after the, on the res- <laughs> Emmaus, on the Emmaus road, he said, he explained how all the Old Testament found its fulfillment in him. They were understanding that all of it pointed to and was fulfilled in Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus. Jesus is the one that we fix our eyes on. Jesus is the one that we follow. Jesus is the one that we worship. Jesus is the one that we obey. Jesus is the one that we trust in. Jesus is the one that we will do anything we submit to. It's Jesus. And let me just tell you this, Cornwall. If we or any other church you ever go to have some central figure different than Jesus, run for the hills. It's about Jesus. It's not about a pastor. It's not about an issue. It's not about a, a ministry. It's about Jesus and as long as I, God allows me to be the pastor here, it will be about Jesus. And if I ever go anywhere else, either kick me out or run for yourself to, to save you. It's about Jesus. Yeah, and he starts off and he says, listen, in his first sermon, he says, let me just tell you, it's about Jesus. And then he goes on. He says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God. Like he was given his stamp of approval. Don't take my word for it. Don't just believe me. He was like approved by God. And how did he do that? To you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Peter's like, now he's talking to those primarily from Jerusalem and the surrounding area, not from the far distance. He's like, guys, I'm not telling you anything you've never heard before. In fact, I'm not telling you something you haven't seen or experienced. Okay, this is me just wondering if this would have happened. So Peter's up there and he's like, come on, you know this stuff. And he just looks around the crowd and he goes, you, yeah, the one jumping up and down, that, that guy that you just think is ADHD. Listen, you know why he's jumping up and down? Tell them, 38 years, 38 years, am I wrong? 38 years, you sat down by the pool of Bethesda. I mean, it is, it is like 
half a mile from here. You sat there for 38 years because you couldn't move until Jesus came along. And that's why you're jumping up and down. Tell them you were there. You, it's you and you, wide-eyed boy, the one looking around. From birth, you were blind. And we were there. Jesus spit on the ground. We're like, whoa, Jesus. He smeared some of that spit mud on your eyes. And then what is he? Where do you? Where do you Pool of Siloam, right? It's right down at the bottom of the hill. Pool of, isn't that right? You went to the Pool of Siloam, washed them out. And you remember how your parents threw you under the bus with the authorities? They said, well, he's an adult. Your whole life, from birth to your adult life, you were blind. That's why you're so wide-eyed. And you, you've been wondering, because I've been wondering too, I'm kind of, how do I know that guy? And you're thinking the same thing as me. I figured it out. 50 days ago, we met in the Mount of Olives. I went all Mike Tyson on you and cut your ear off. You were there. I know it was dark. You were trying to arrest Jesus. Your ear was laying on the ground and show him. Jesus put that ear back up. You know what I'm talking about. Come on, Mary, Martha, okay, forget you. Lazarus, dude, you were dead. Four days, four days. You were, tell him you were dead. He's like, listen, you guys have seen this. God proved it to you. The, the signs and the miracles, the things that he did. Did, did, did you, don't take my word for it. He goes on. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Listen, God is sovereign. He knows all things. He knew what was going to happen. But he handed him over. And you were a part, you're complicit. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You remember Caiaphas and Annas teamed up with Pilate and Herod? Remember, okay, do the two words crucify him, crucify him ring a bell to you? You were chanting it. You saw it was on the Skull Hill right over there. You saw it. He was, that's when it went dark. That's when the moon came up right. You saw all this. You were a part of it. But... But, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God raised him from the dead. This was the event. Jesus' teaching, second to none, profound, divine, amazing, yes. His healing, that was like proof that he's from God. But his resurrection, that confirms it. That's the event. That becomes the very foundation. That becomes the cornerstone. That becomes the, what they base their life and their faith and their ministry and everything upon that he has risen from the dead. Listen, there's a little thing that we do around here on Easter, and I just figure it's time to have Easter in summer. So there's a little call and response thing. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Some of you don't. So we're going to do it twice. The first time, those of you who, well, all of you only come on Easter, but some of you come more. But those of you who have been here on Easter... You interact, and then those of you who have not been here on Easter, you'll hear, oh, it's that thing, and then we can do it. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, now, now everyone's got it. Now we're going to do it with great enthusiasm and volume. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Yeah, this was the event. Paul would say, man, if you take the resurrection away, you don't have any faith. You don't have any points. It's all useless. And he said, and God raised him from the dead. What's cool in this verse is that the, the way Peter talks about it, it's, it's almost like he uses some terminology where the tomb, he looks at the tomb as a womb. 
Because for most people, the tomb is the dead end. But as Peter's explaining this, it's almost like this wasn't a dead end. This was a birth to a new beginning. Like, yes, Jesus was crucified. Yes, he died. Yes, he was buried. But that was not the end of it. It's like that's the gestation period. And then it becomes the birthing canal, which brings us new life for all of eternity. In, in Colossians chapter 1, talking about Jesus and his supremacy, so he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, whether, you know, uh, on heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. Listen to this. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. It's the firstborn from the dead. It's not the end. It's not the death. It's the new birth happens in the tomb. And then it says it's impossible for that to keep its hold on him. Uh, One theologian, I, I should have written his name down, he writes this. He said, the abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. Think about that. The abyss, the grave, death, cannot hold on to Jesus any more than a woman who's nine and a half months pregnant can hold on to a baby in her body. Now, I've never been pregnant, and I don't know how that works, but my guess is this. When the baby says it's time to come, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You can't say, you know what? Thursday would be a whole lot better for me. It's going to be hot tomorrow. Can we wait till it cools down? doesn't work. You can have a caring husband along your side saying, honey, just don't think about it. Just hold it. Cross your legs. Just wait. No, when the baby is coming, the baby is coming, and it says now. And when Jesus is in the grave, he says, it's time. And there's not a thing that, that all the spiritual realm can do. Nothing can hold me back. It was impossible because he was given new birth to this eternal life in his resurrection. And Peter goes on, we'll have to skip over some of this, some of his three-minute sermon. He begins to talk about their patriarch, David. He says, you know David. David died. You can go to his tomb. It's right down there over the hill. You can go see where he was buried. He got it. And David even talked about this, how Jesus would not be left into, in, in the grave. All right, where are we, 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. What did Jesus say? You will be my witness. Witness to my teaching? Yeah, but that's not what he was talking about. Witness to the miracles? Yeah, we've heard about that already. You're a witness to the fact that God raised this Jesus from the dead. Jesus, this name, Jesus, the one who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalted him. So he goes on, he says, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This Jesus that you all know, I mean, listen, his lordship, it was, it was proclaimed at his baptism, all right? It was accredited through his miracles, and it is confirmed in his resurrection. The Jesus that you had a part in putting to death, God raised him from the dead, and this father 
as now as he's at the right hand of God, this Father has given to him the promised Holy Spirit, and now he is pouring out that Holy Spirit. These guys aren't drunk. I'm telling you, you want to know what, what does this mean? This is what it means from Joel, what Moses wished for. It's happening right here today in our midst. And this Jesus is at the right hand of God. Listen, no disregard for those of you who are left-handed. And I apologize for those of you whose parents tried to turn you right-handed. But this whole idea of being right-handed, the right hand, it's this position of authority, position of supremacy, position of power. And Jesus is exalted by and at the right hand of God. He's exalted to this right hand of God. To have this place of supremacy over heaven and earth, over the spiritual realm, even over the grave and death. I wonder if, this is a what if. This is the biblical, not biblical. This is a, I wonder. I wonder if that day, remember, it's the day of Pentecost. People come from all over to Jerusalem. Jewish people, especially devout Jews, are at Jerusalem. They're at the temple. Could it be, speculation, could it be that in the crowd that day when Peter is speaking, his, preaching his very first sermon, and there are literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people hearing this, could it be, wouldn't it be, that the Pharisees would have been there as well? When that rushing, roaring, violent wind sound came through, wouldn't they have been like saying, what's going on over here? And if the Pharisees were there, wouldn't it be likely that there'd be a young Pharisee who lives in Jerusalem, who's under the tutelage of a guy named, a, a, kind of like the, the Yoda of, of rabbis, Gamaliel, a young Pharisee who's like the bright, shining, upcoming star of Pharisees in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost at the temple. Isn't it possible that while he was born in Tarsus, he now lives in Jerusalem, that there's a young Pharisee in the crowd named Saul? And could it be that this Saul, who is so committed to God and his word, hears about this one that they had crucified as a blasphemer, and now this Galilean, uneducated follower of his is saying that he's Christ and Lord. Could it be that inside of this Saul, there starts this anger, this fury, this rage, this, this utter disgust and contempt for this man and all who follow this dead man, Jesus? Could it be that as Peter preaches his first sermon, these words are embedded in the mind of this young Pharisee? And something happens. This one's four weeks from now. I was working on this on Friday. I, I can't wait to preach four weeks from now, okay? But just telling you. That he gets turned around, and he goes from the biggest terrorist. I, I should, I should stop. I'm giving you a preview. I'm, I'm preaching four weeks from now sermon. He goes from the terrorist to the greatest proponent. And what if... What he heard that day was so stamped on his mind that it became a part of his message. Because when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And it says this, the power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And look at this, seated him where? At his right hand in the heavenly realms. What if Paul first heard that on the day of Pentecost in the temple court? And then when he writes in Colossians, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's that theme that comes back in. And, and what's the deal with being seated? Why is Jesus seated at the right hand? 
Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is our great high priest. While the high priest is making sacrifices, he has to stand. While he's sacrificing lambs and bulls and doing all these things before sprinkling the blood, he has to stand. He's doing that. Jesus, our great high priest, is not in the temple made by hands. He's not uh, sacrificing animals. And, and so Jesus, he is the final sacrifice. He finally makes the final purification. There is no more reason to kill lambs. There is no more reason to kill the bulls. There is no more reason to have the... the the earthly hand, man-made temple, because the temple is now the people of God. He says, it is finished, and he sits down. That's why. It's the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's why he said, it is finished. And now, it's the ongoing work of Christ in the world, through the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Back to the scripture, verse 36. Therefore, Peter says, therefore, You wanted to know what's going on? I'm telling you. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And I can imagine the 11 disciples going, check him out. Like he's not messing up. This is, he's never done this before. I mean, he is on fire. He's killing it. What happened to Pete? It's not what happened, it's who happened. It's the Holy Spirit. He says, listen, I want you to be assured of this. This is the same Peter who a month and a half earlier denied even knowing who Jesus was in front of a teenage girl. And now he's in front of thousands of people saying, with great boldness, be assured of this. This Jesus, Jew crucified, God has made him Lord, has made him Christ. You rejected The stone the builders rejected, you rejected him. God exalted him. The judges of this world said he's not worthy. The judge of the universe, of eternity, says he is Christ and he is Lord. He exalts him, both Christ and Lord. And it goes on. In the response, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You you know what this cut to the heart is? It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And let me just kind of throw this in. If there are those times where you're like, I probably shouldn't do this, shouldn't click on this, shouldn't repeat that gossip, shouldn't go there, shouldn't say yes to that, shouldn't do that. You know what that is? That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And when you turn it away, when you turn a deaf ear to it, when you don't listen to it, when you ignore it, it gets fainter and fainter. They are hearing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And their response is, okay, okay, okay. So what shall we do? You know what's so great? They start the sermon asking, what does this mean They end the sermon saying, what shall we do? That's important. Because a lot of times, guys like me get up here and flap and scream and sweat and try to impress, and at the end of it, you walk out there going, what did that mean? Wrong order. What happens, it's moving from information to application for transformation. That's why we look into the Word of God. It's not just to get information but application for transformation. You know I love the biblical information. I mean, I could spend hours, I do spend hours every week. I just can't get enough of it. But if it's just about information, the Pharisees would have had it going on because they had all the information, but no transformation. I would rather have you be 
I don't think these are mutual enemies, mutually exclusive. I'd rather have you be biblically illiterate but transformed by God than to be a biblical scholar and lost in your sin. Now, I think God uses both. I know he does. uses the biblical information when we apply it for transformation. Why? It's not just so that we can answer the Bible quizzing contest. So that we can become more like Jesus. So we would love God and love others. The first and second greatest commandments. So that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Being transformed by his word. So Peter, he just gets real specific. says, okay, you wanted to know what this meant? I told you. You want to know what to do? Let me tell you. Peter replied, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Change your thinking. Change your, your mindset. Change your, your life. Be baptized and receive. That's what I want you to do. I mean, look at this. When we repent for the forgiveness of our sins, we confess them. God is faithful and just and will forgive us from all unrighteousness. There's a new freedom we find. A freedom from guilt, a freedom from shame, a freedom from condemnation, a freedom from punishment. It, it, whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. He says, that's what I want for you. This new freedom. And when you're baptized, as we saw today, those who are being baptized, we are baptized into Christ. We have a new identity, who we are in Christ. We've been transformed. We're sons and daughters of the Most High. We're redeemed. We have the righteousness of Christ on us. And there's a new identity. Your identity and your worth and your value is not what you drive or what you know or who you've you know, gone on what vacation or what house you have or, or what you've accomplished or your degrees. or None of that. Your value and your worth is who you are in Jesus Christ. It's a new identity. And to receive the Holy Spirit, it's a new power. It's a new power so you're not just doing it on your own. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling right within you. And what if, what if we lived in this reality every day? What if every morning when we woke up, we just, the first thought that came to my mind, Lord, your mercies are new every morning. Today, I can live in freedom. You have forgiven me. And today, no matter what anyone else thinks, I am a child of the king. I am loved by you. I'm, I am your son. I'm your daughter. And your Holy Spirit dwells right within me. For anything that I face today, to give me the power to live that life. Wow! To live in that reality. And this sermon that Peter preached sparked a revolution. Look what it says in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. This presents a bit of a problem that we'll look at next week. They went in Jerusalem from 120 in their little church to 3,120 in one day. Little side note, the baptism thing. There's a thing in Israel called a mikvah. It's like a baptistry that was used for ceremonial cleaning. Archaeologists find these all over Israel. They're all over around the Temple Mount. 
to baptize 3,000 people that day, there were baptisms happening all over the place. And then their numbers grew. Here's what I want to leave you with. To live in that reality of the new freedom and the forgiveness and the grace of God, to live truly into that new identity of who you are in Christ, and to live in that new power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And I'll throw this one out. For some of you here today in the room, maybe you're sitting here thinking, wow, next time they do one of those baptism things, I ought to do that. You saw it happen, you heard it about it. Maybe today's the day. And right now you're saying, well, no, no, I didn't bring a swimsuit and I, and I don't have a towel and, and I mean, I have the all wet going home. Okay, let me just answer those questions. We have towels. Take everything out of your pockets. Take your shoes off. Stuff goes in the washing machine anyway. And on a day like today, five minutes in the parking lot, you'll be dried off. You're good to go. He <laughs> says, if you want to be baptized here in a few minutes after the service, find one of our pastors, Pastor Kip, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Randy, Pastor Mike, myself. We'll talk with you. We'll baptize you today. Repent and be baptized and receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So, anyway, this is the history of the church. This is his story of the church, and we get to be a part of it. Stand as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for the reality of Jesus, whom you said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased at his baptism. And you gave your accreditation to him in his miracles. And you confirmed it all in his resurrection. And you've given to him the Holy Spirit to pour out on us. And we can live in that. So I pray that we would live in this freedom, this true identity, in your power. All for your glory. We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen.